Welcome to a new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have two very special guests. We have Constantine Sandus and Gary Browning. Uh, Constantine is professor of philosophy at the University of Hertfordshire, uh, founding director of Lex Academic and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts in the UK. Uh, Gary is a pr professor of political thought at Oxford Brookes University. He's the author of many books, including Why Iris Murdoch Matters, and a history of modern political thought, the question of interpretation, and is co-editor of the political art of Bob Dylan. Constantine and Gary are co-editors of the new book, Dylan at 80. It used to go like that, and now it goes like this. Welcome both. Hey guys, so thank you so much for coming on. And you know, before we get into just the book itself, right? I mean, I think our audience is gonna wanna know, how did you guys become so passionate about Bob? Where's that from? Well, uh, I think. Well, okay, Constantine. I, I was gonna say. So, no, I was gonna say. <laughs> I was gonna say. I think Gary probably got passionate about Bob uh, a little earlier than me. So that I was just sort of paving the ground for you there. All oh, right. Um, well, I think um, I go back to uh, about 1963, the kind of um, and the freewheeling album. Uh, mm. I think my brother's girlfriend brought it over. She he was older than me. I was uh, I was uh, about nine ten, and um, and I thought, hey, this album's really good. I mean, this guy is both serious, and it really is kind of there's an authentic feel to it. It kind of works with traditions, and it and it's really serious. I, I thought Free Winning was a fantastic album, and I think I was looking for something at a young age to think, hey, I can hang my coat on this, you know, um, it's not my parents, this is me, you know, and, um, and yeah, it was fantastic. And, um, and I think Free Weeding is a great album still. Hmm. And, and uh, since in then, my case, oh, sorry. No, no, go on. Since then, you, you've come to hate him. No, no. <laughs> not, at all. I, not at all my parents my pa my my father was a leonard cohen fan but but there wasn't any dylan in the house and i was really into grunge and punk rock to be quite honest and dismissed dylan as some kind of folky or hippie never trust the hippie and um i had this friend who was like no no dylan's a punk and he brought me like highway 61 revisited with Dylan sitting there with his um, Triumph t-shirt, looking kind of um, like he wasn't going to take anything from anyone and no one was gonna tell him what to say or think or, or do. And I, I, that was the first album. I mean, I'd heard things before, you know, but that was the first album I sort of played from, from start to finish. And that would have been in the kind of uh, mid nineties. Um, and then soon after that, I mean, I started listening to so much of it over the next five years or, or catching up with, you know, 25 years worth of, of music already. And then soon after that, he released, I think, World Gone Wrong was the first mm -hmm. Dylan album that came out um, kind of when I was already a, a, a Dylan fan. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, Gary, what was it about Free Willing that spoke to you? Well, I think it was the authenticity. There was a directness to it. And I think actually, I mean, actually Girl from the North Country, I thought was good. I mean, I'd heard lots, I mean, I was young, but I'd heard quite a lot of romantic ballads, which I thought didn't really tell the truth. Whereas um, that just seemed very simple, very direct, and it really worked. So, um, and of course the other songs were similarly. There was something really direct and kind of clear cut about it. And the lyrics were sharp and it was really good. It was, I mean, interestingly on freewheeling many, many years later, my son was into Dylan and, um, and there's a dedication in the book to my son. Um, and he kind of, um, he, he went straight for early Dylan, like the freewheeling he thought was great because uh, he, he, he was a musician himself. He thought there was something really direct there. And so it made me feel that, yeah, I mean, and what Constantine said about High was 61, I remember hearing that in, in the King's Road, actually, um, when, when it came out. And I thought, hey, that is really kind of something, putting it to you. But, um, and, and those, those mid-60s albums, I guess, in, in, for a lot of people of my generation and others, it defines Dylan as 
really cool. But um, but I think my son's liking of free weeding reminded me that there's a hell of a lot in that early stuff. So mm. so that's it, really. How do you think that uh, Dylan reconciled how he saw himself and how his fans saw him in the sense that he was heralded as sort of this, um, as, as far as his music goes, it spoke uh, politically, philosophically to, to many listeners. Um, do you think that he shared the same thoughts that his fans did of himself, or maybe he had a different sort of perspective on, on, his, on his own music? Um, he, he definitely wanted to distance himself from that voice of a generation sort of tagline and would sort of say various things about, you know, what generation and what, you know, I don't speak for these people and, and so on. Um, obviously, that he upset the, the folk movement when, when he went electric and um, kind of infamously. Um, and he's, I think, in quite interestingly, in while that we have this view of Dylan as kind of, and he, he released albums like Self Portrait, arguably to kind of distance himself from his fans or, or kind of um, confuse fans and just tell people, you know, he had a lot of people thinking this guy, I mean, it's, it feels crazy now to think about this, but there were people who thought this guy was like some prophet or messiah or something mm -hmm. who were like following him down Greenwich Village. And he really wanted to, kind of hide and distance himself from all that but I think in the last sort of 20-30 years um, he's there's a real bond with his fans at, at concerts and um, way more than than I think in in earlier years and there is something there there's a kind of and the way they respond to him and he he doesn't talk much on stage but there's definitely something interactive and a real appreciation he this is someone who loves being on the road who who he's he's on the road now he's playing tonight he, he restarted yesterday um having played some gigs in in november and early december he's like in i think arizona today he was in new mexico yesterday he's off to texas tomorrow this is an 80 year old man who won't stop so i i think now there is a kind of love between him and his fans yeah. Gary, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, what I would mm. say is that um, early Dylan, and this is when people think of him as the great political kind of folk hero who is the voice of a, a generation, you know, articulating political truths and so on. I mean, those songs, those early songs actually ask more questions than deliver answers. I mean, famously, Blown in the Wind is a series of questions. Um, but also, I think there are some essays in our book about those early political songs. I did one and Ray Monk does another, the philosopher Ray Monk does another very good essay, I think. And, you know, and Dylan turns like, I mean, he doesn't give a standard answer in only appalling their game. You know, the assassin of Medgar Evers, you know, he, Dylan's actually were, is empathetic to or sees the, the, the poor white or the white who kills as, as it were, a part of society, and it's a kind of social problem rather than an easily answered problem. And in The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, Ray Monk urges that we should see that Dylan is turning the question of, like, when are you going to kind of um, show kind of um, some kind of um, feeling for the injustice here? And he's challenging the liberal audience, you know, the liberal audience. And so even at the height of his kind of political uh, phase, if you like, Dylan asks questions like a hard rain's going to fall. It's, it's still rather difficult to say what the hard rain is. Um, and and so Dylan's politics was never a mass off the shelf kind of set of answers or nostrums. I mean, the guy was reflective and thinking. And so there's a there's a kind of perspective there, which is tricky for an artist, I think, who's not coming out with homilies or nostrums or cliches, but he's actually I mean, massively and, and magnificently in a, in a small kind of, uh, in a short set of verses, asking profound questions. And that, I think, sets Dylan apart from any kind of mass audience right away. Although the tunes and the songs are so good, 
they everyone is there with them you know uh, so i think that's interesting right from the beginning dylan is his, is his own man you know and then he goes through and he's been political ever since really i mean there are political dimensions to say empire burlesque a number of political songs on that um and i in my essay in um in this book I talk about um, Dylan and the political then and now, you know, like Murder Most Foul returns to the scene of the crime, literally, of the 60s, in a sense. And, and he is ruminative in reflecting upon what does that mean, that tragedy, that political tragedy, what does it mean, you know, for the Kennedys, for the assassins, but also for a culture, I think. How can we live with it? Um, and so Dylan is asking profound questions, uh, never going to be an easy mass person, I think, no easy answers. So he's always gonna be someone who's maybe set apart. I, I think that's true. I mean, I would say with, with Constantine, what Constantine he said is fine. And then that kind of link with the audience, I think has, is kind of more kind of palpable in the last, um, in the last 10 years. However, I, um, I remember being with Constantine and another of our contributors, Roger Dalrymple, at, Dylan in Hyde Park a few years ago. And um, Dylan was pretty challenging that day. You know, it was not an easy set. You know, he didn't kind of, he didn't perform any kind of stylized or classic Dylan style, you know, like a Rolling Stone sounded rather different from how one remembered it. So, mm, yeah, that's a nice example of, uh, you know, one thing he, if you imagine a kind of, if you think of like a Bruce Springsteen concert where everyone is like, like that singing along the kind of anthem songs and then when Dylan plays like some of his biggest hits like 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 Aaron Stone there are some members of the audience who really want to sing along in this way to it and they can't because he's changed the tune and often the words as well uh, and it's impossible to sing along to and it's very hard to think this isn't intentional that he doesn't want that he doesn't want sort of a field of people in Hyde Park singing like a Rolling Stone as if there's no problem and we're all united here. And there's, there is something there that he, he really doesn't like. And so there's a kind of tension between not wanting um, that kind of easy stadium. I mean, easy, it's not like it's easy to be Bruce Springsteen, but, but that kind of um, easy feeling of, of everyone is, is together in a, in a kind of communal environment. He doesn't seem to like that, but he does seem to like kind of adding little things for, for his, his fans here and, and there, and little things that people will, he knows a lot of the hardcore fans look out for the lyric changes and so on, for example. Yeah, and his individual idiosyncratic reframing of some of his songs isn't because I mean he certainly doesn't like what 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 you just said, Constantine. That kind of very kind of mass sing along kind of um, adoption of the of the singer as the hero. He 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 wants to kind of um, move on from that, uh, but he's still giving a very engaged performance. Like that version of Rolling Stone we heard was interesting. You know, I mean, I've heard it many many times, but I found it interesting, even though it was desperately difficult to go with it. You know, so. So, and Dylan is that highly individual, highly kind of ruminative, reflective person. So that even his his kind of early folk anthems are not simple, are not straightforward. You know, um, um, they turn back, they turn back. You know, um, as he said in '64, "I'm liberal to a degree. I want everyone to be free. But if you think I'm going to allow Barry Goldwater to move in next door, uh, you must be mad," kind of thing. So, yeah. I love that so much. And if you think about it sort of philosophically, right, a lot of the reasons why I think people give up on philosophy is because, you know, it sort of tends to be a little bit dry and a bit, uh, let's say, straightforward, right? So if you think about putting something like that into song where there's a kind of a melody and the rhythm behind it, I can imagine that, you know, sometimes a person might listen to the song and they might think, oh, well, this is really catchy. And then little by little, you know, they start reflecting, reflecting on the lyrics. Mm -hmm. And at first they might think, well, you know, these lyrics are kind of difficult, but I still like the tune, right? So I'm still going to kind of hum along to it and sing along to it. It. But after some time, you know, they're like, no, I really want to understand this. I want to know what this is about. What is he actually trying to tell me? So it's like, that's with, his, uh, yeah. yeah, that's his greatness, I think. Yeah, so precisely it's like, that. It reminds me of kind of Bertolt Brecht has this kind of, you know, the, the songs, um, I mean, the lyrics he, he, he wrote to songs and, and even his poems where, 
you know, there's some stuff that people could easily identify with that seem kind of finger pointing, but then it kind of gets quite dark. There's a lot of stuff about accepting our responsibility as humanity. And it's not just this kind of finger pointing stuff, but it starts looking at, um, you know, society as a whole with him as part of it, not just societies to blame. And I'm somehow standing, standing outside of it. And you get that in Dylan in like who killed Davy Moore and, and, and songs like that. Um, yes. Uh, his finger pointing song. Maybe he did do finger pointing songs, but the finger pointed at himself mm. and at the audience as much as anyone else. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's demanding and thoughtful. And as you were saying, you know, Gradually, little by little, maybe the audience or the exactly. fans come along with him and and see the complexity or the reflectiveness of the what's happening. Yeah, it, what's interesting to me is there have been many times in Dylan's career where he's wanted to sort of get out of the game to stop, you know, stop touring, stop, stop this whole music thing. Uh, why do you think he's still engaged uh, today? You know, Dylan at eighty. What? Why is he still doing it? What? What's What's sort of uh, maybe his intention, if, if you could sort of gauge that? Well, I mean, I, I'll just say, I'll try and be brief. You know, mm. I mean, he stopped at various times, partly because he was on a kind of treadmill, I think, you know, in 66. Mm. I think if he didn't stop, it would have ended, you know. I mean, in the sense that he was under immense pressure and and he wanted to regain a bit of control and a bit of kind of quiet, a bit of ease, you know, so that he could, refuel the batteries I think so sometimes he stops for that reason but I think what is absolutely clear about Dylan is that he's massively knowledgeable and relishes um song you know lyrics songs tunes traditional songs and and music of all kinds you know which has quality you know from gospel to blues to folk to country to rock and roll you know and so this is a guy in love with music I think and highly knowledgeable about it, but not in a dry and dusty way, in a lived experience kind of way. So I think he's always going to go back on the road because he is really committed to, to his trade, to singing, to songs and, and, and that, you know, but at times he steps out because the pressures on someone that big, I think, and in that industry is are such that you've got to step back. I don't, I'll, I'll let Constantine. I think, I mean, there's an interesting question of, what it means to stop. I remember reading an interview with, with Patti Smith and she's like talking about reading this article on her where, you know, the journalist is saying, oh, and she did, she did nothing for 10 years in the eighties or something. And like Patti Smith is like, what do you mean I did nothing? I was doing a lot of things. I just didn't release a record. Um, and I, you know, when in these periods where Dylan stops, I mean, especially now with like the bootleg series and so on, he's doing a hell of a lot. In, in some of these periods. Um, and there's there's bits, you know, there's parts where he might not make a record for a bit. And then there's parts where he stopped touring. And of course in the sixties touring was nothing like it is now um, with, you know, big money, big stadiums ev everywhere. And you can tour the whole world. Um, he didn't even make it to the UK on a proper tour till, till 65, um, 1965. Um, so, so I think, yeah, there are reasons, personal reasons, um, uh, when he, he might stop for a period and, and change gear, but he's never really properly um, stopping. Um, but I think certainly there were many Dylan critics who thought under the red sky in, in, in the nineties was going to be his last album of original works or something. And I think he really did surprise people, you know, a, a decade where there were um, kind of two albums of, of, as it turned out of, of, of new music um, written by him that decade. I think people were really surprised how much he did later. And I don't know what the explanation is. I, I can't speak for him, but in many, you know, one option is that, maybe he's happy where he is now. There's a kind of, you know, he's happy doing what he does and he certainly seems happy on the road at any rate, much more than in, he's had an ambivalent relationship with recording studios. And one change that is worth mentioning is that from Love and Theft, which came out um, on 9-11, that, that very day as it happened, that was the first 
self-produced album um, un under the pseudonym Jack Frost. And he's been producing his albums ever since. And he definitely seems more comfortable. I think he felt comfortable maybe in the very early days when it was just him and an acoustic guitar. Um, but ever since he started producing his own records, I think we've, we've had more of them than we would have otherwise expected. I, th I think it's worth adding that, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All of that makes sense to me. Um, uh, yeah, I remember reading a review of um, Time Out of Mind when it came out in 96, and it said, enjoy this because uh, this is going to be either the last or one of the last we'll ever hear from Dylan. Well, that didn't prove to be true. But one of the things I think that I think of when I think of Dylan and him carrying on is that line in It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. You know, he's not busy being born, he's busy dying. The guy is massively committed, I think, to creativity, to creating, to creating that self all the time, you know, and, and where he creates is in this form. I mean, he's got many forms. He's a great DJ. He kind of sculpts. He's an artist. But I think, you know, his singing, his songwriting, his music, that's where he's massively creative and he's going to carry on because that's him. Yeah. And what do you guys think that he wanted us to start thinking about or to obviously continue thinking about politically and socially? What were the important issues to him at that time? At which time? Sorry. Oh, yeah. so, sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, so it's my, my fault, my fault. Yeah, because I'm thinking back 60s, 70s. Um, I mean, I think, uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I think yeah, uh, on. early on, um, race is really big for him, um, really, really important, and, and civil rights mo movement re related to that. And it, it, it's quite interesting how, you know, some of those issues, you know, for a while, we would associate as 60s issues, but in fact, they, they, they come up big time in, in kind of Black Lives Matter and um, say their name and things like that. And Dylan always said their name in, in these songs, that that's something that's very prevalent um, in, in the early songs. And it's something that's, I would say, you know, Dylan has changed, you know, a thousand times over the years, but, but that has stayed with him. And, and he was very outspoken with, with um, George Floyd uh, murder, for example. So that, that's something that, that has remained perhaps the only constant, um, even if the kinds of songs he writes are, are, are somewhat different now, the only constant and Martin Luther King is still mentioned in, in, in the last album. Um, so I think that was really big. And then at some point, those songs became just what people wanted him to do and he wanted to move on. I think a lot of people were upset when he started writing personal songs, love songs, mm. things like that. People wanted him to, um, for, for everything to, to be political. And of course, Dylan himself maybe thinks it all is political on some um, looser level. Mm -hmm. um, and he's since then written about all sorts of um, other political topics, but I, I would say race and civil rights were re really big to, to begin with, but Gary may have additional themes to point out. No, I think, I think you're right. I think he's kind of, um, the civil rights um, and, kind of, um, and kind of race, I think, was big for Dylan. He's written, you know, and performed incredibly important songs there um, in the early 60s. I mean, um, from Oxford Town, Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. Um, uh, 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 only a Pawn in Their Game is a terrific song, I think. Um, on, the, there's an essay in our book by Alexander Douglas on the sort of history of Black America and Bob Dylan and, and where he fits in with that. And it's an uneasy history because he, at the same time, owes a lot to, you know, people today talk of cultural appropriation and, and Dylan is someone who arguably while he's done so so much um, in in defense of Black America, arguably has culturally appropriated, uh, and that's something that he's aware of. Um, his album "Love and Theft" in quotation marks is partly about stealing what what you love, um, and so there are these kind of really complicated. Um, um, but issues but you're also that. right that he shows a kind of empathy and a concern 
right the way through his career for the, All the way black through. people, yeah. you know. And Blind Willie McTell, I think, is one of his greatest songs um, in, in, you know, an outtake, from, ridiculously an outtake from Infidels. Um, and it's, a, I mean, the, the kind of incredibly intense way in, in, in a few verses, he kind of invokes a history of, of, uh, of the United States and of oppression and of race and slavery. Mm. You know, and he's quoted as saying slavery is the most important thing when considering American uh, politics and history. And he's right. <laughs> and he's 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 written about it and sung it incredibly well, well. while stealing the tune of St. Yeah, James I know. Infirmary. But it's, as you will know, it's cultural <laughs> appropriation is part of is part of part of our identities. You know, and well, he does, as you say, in Love and Theft, that is all about. The whole album is about how we take things, you know, and how we must cherish it, but also still take, you know, and that I think, and in fact, Love and Theft itself is a title he took from someone else. So he wow. kind of... <laughs> That's great. It is great, you know, and the guy is very, very thoughtful, reflective, but, you know, all the way through, you know, I think Blind Willie McTell is a political song. I mean, but then... Um, one of the things he, he's also been very keen on is, that, is to highlight just how chillingly cynical politics can be and how the system, as it were, can be controlling. And then in the mid-60s, he, he really does push for non-conformism and he sees conformism on the left. And, you know, he, he's always hitting against that, you know. And so some late songs, they're inflected sometimes by religion, but political world trouble. Um, these are highlighting some of the problems of systemic kind of um, um, systemic lack of trust, lack of decency, lack of openness within the system. You know, so the individual has to preserve themselves, but they've also got to some show some cultural kind of authenticity, which can carry the public world, which I guess is what he's saying in Murder Most Foul, which he which he delivered fairly recently. So. Uh, I think he's interesting politically, and he's always been critical of judges. I love that. Um, and he's always critical of, he's, of capital, actually. Union Sundown he is a, is a critique of contemporary or recent global capitalism. So uh, he, he does deal with a lot of aspects of politics, you know, the system, the public world, the lack of integrity of the political world, of, of the public world of representation. You know, capital and its kind of remorseless kind of um, absorption of individuals. And he's always kind of had songs for outsiders, mavericks, kind of people who are downcast, people who are victims of the palpable victims of the system. And that includes poor black people. Yeah, well, okay, so sort of a few threads that uh, we can kind of take here. Uh, let me see. Okay, I want to kind of, I don't, ah, this sucks. I hate having to choose between topics because I feel like this is so interesting. Okay, so in terms of cultural appropriation, in this case, I think that's so interesting because if you just think about something like hip hop music, right? So, which is obviously predominantly done by Black people. And when they're taking these things that, you know, we call samples, where it's sort of music from funk, uh, music from even maybe some reggae tracks, and they take these little bits and pieces and they turn them into rhymes right in the background so uh well, rather the rhymes are in the foreground and these kind of like little samples are in the background one could say that well you know they're also appropriating right they're appropriating music from someone else uh like kanye west uh i know this is a little bit more contemporary with kanye west he had an issue with shaka khan because he took her through the fire sample even though she allowed it but he took it and he made it into like this little bit of a chipmunk voice and she hated it and she's like i totally hate this song now but if you think about it that song that he made through the wire wouldn't have really been as, as as uh, significant as it would have been without the Shaka Khan sample. So, but he respected her, right? So even though obviously it didn't really work out, the way that he kind of says it is that, look, I took the sample because it's so meaningful to me and I genuinely really love the song. And thinking about Bob Dylan and, you know, again, appropriation, I wonder if in this case, but him labeling the album Love and Theft, if he's saying like, look, I know what I'm doing and I understand that this isn't something that's, you know, totally acceptable, but I love this music so much that it's so hard for me as a creative person not to be inspired by it in this way so i don't know what do you guys think well i, I, I think, think definitely sorry yeah. that love, no, love and theft is is definitely an, an a nod to, to to eric lott's um 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 book um which itself is is a is, is about um um well it's partly ab ab about blackface in in early american um, um music which complicates 
blackface minstrels. So it complicates um, the the story even more. And and it's definitely aware aware. There's on the new album. There's a song called Goodbye Jimmy Reed. Um, it, the song for Charlie Patton in for Charlie Patton in, uh, earlier. I mean, he's always kind of name dropping those influences and and doing things um, with them. But there is a side of Dylan, and especially early on, he says he works in a tradition of ki kind of music that's public domain or traditional, where it would be handed out. Um, um, sort of orally and people would, you know, over the years change lyrics and change tunes and he does that with his own songs. So he's really working within that tradition. And yet you would sort of see sometimes these traditional songs would suddenly appear even now on his website as copyright Bob Dylan. And you kind of think what's, what's going on there? What's happened there? And, and, and um, he would steal arrangements from from people like Devon Ronk, for example, and then put them on his uh, album um, um, and, and so on. So th there's some kind of slightly sneakier stuff going on. Um, but at the same time, he definitely knows he's doing it and, and he's, yeah, kind of very aware yeah, of think, it and talks yeah. about it. He, he, um, he's certainly aware about it. And and I think you're right to bring up hip hop and, and you know, I, I think popular culture or any culture, T.S. Eliot, you know, is going to draw on other strands of that culture, previous preceding culture. With with Constantine, occasionally Dylan, um, say on modern times, he kind of draws upon a few minor poets that people are not conversant with and he doesn't flag what he's doing. So I'm not sure if people are going to pick up that reference and what it's doing you know um you mean virgil when he, by minor <laughs> yes but no no i wasn't thinking of it, but but when he talks about and when he kind of um when he records rolling and tumbling you know i mean is there anyone who doesn't see muddy waters there you know and 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 further back so i think he for the most part is reflecting that and to go back to what i said before about creativity being the most important thing for dylan lots of people think including me think of him as a supreme individualist you know someone who's very very keen to kind of advocate but also plumb the depths of his own inner psyche and creativity but i think in love and theft and in other stuff he's saying that creativity when you create you're not creating in abstraction from a wider culture you're creating within a tradition, you're creating in relation to lots of other people and diverse. And he shows us how, you know, something that's thought to be simple, you know, um, songs, music, you know, fairly simple music. No, I mean, he shows so many strands and multiple kind of um, creative kind of connections to what's come before. And he is self-conscious of that. And love and theft is that. I mean, the guy is very interesting. I thought modern times hasn't, it hasn't been brought up as much as it might that it strikes me this is uh, showing a homage to Charlie Chaplin and modern times. Um, and the great song on that album is, um, is well, one of the great songs is Ain't Talking, you know, and Ain't Talking is, I think, a homage to kind of Charlie Chaplin. How can one be authentic, authentically kind of register what's going on in modern times or the beginnings of modern times? Uh, Chaplin did it by retaining or trying the, the, the kind of... Um, um, the the silent motif, you know, and, and raining against or resisting kind of talking, you know, but um, and in modern times that he doesn't talk apart from one bit. Uh, and Dylan in in modern times isn't talking, you know, he's he's kind of preserving that integrity. Um, it's not that, talking think, to like 14 verses of it or something. Yeah, but, but it's interesting. So I think he's he's commented on that kind of influence, creativity, interconnectedness, you know, um, uh, and the inevitability of kind of, um, of, of uh, creation taking part in a kind of, uh, in a much more complex web. Um, and I think he's right to draw our attention to it. Right. And it's also difficult. I mean, every time that you're creating to sort of figure out what that line is between theft and, you know, borrowing, I guess, for lack yeah. of a better term. And tribute, paying tribute is of course perfectly fine. And there's a lot of that kind of little nods here, here and there um, to, 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 to things. Um, so it is, yeah, a very sort of 
it can be very difficult. It can be very difficult. You're right, you know. Um, but we can all see it. I'm just trying to think of an example when it's done badly, when someone right. just lifts something without any oh, life. I have a great I have a great example. Yeah. So do you guys remember the Queen and David Bowie song Under Pressure? Yeah. Yes. Do you remember when oh, Vanilla I, Ice made Vanilla Ice? Ice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's and a it, nice example. Yeah, and it's like it's almost the same exact. It's not almost. It's the same exact tune. And Vanilla Ice's argument in court was like one ends with and the other ends with poop. <laughs> it's like, yeah. What? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's it's making something greater from what you started, not an inferior kind of copy. There, there's an interview with Dylan where they push him on this, and he says, "You do it. You try and do what I what I do." And the truth is, what, what he comes up with. It isn't just a, a mere copy of something. He takes bits he likes, but creates something that's more often than not way more interesting than the thing he, he began with. What I find interesting there is um, uh, the song, which I I think when it came out, I didn't warm to as much um, tight connection to my heart on the album um, Empire Burlesque, which a lot of people don't like, um, and he uses or invokes there lots of um, lots of lines from from kind of uh, cinema, from movies, Humphrey Bogart films, from Humphrey Bogart. I mean, and they uh, and a lot of the song is those lines, you know. Uh, and yet, I think there's a real power to that song. You know, somehow or other. He he's got uh, kind of um, he's made it something something interesting, you know, and that I think is 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 a great art, you know. That he he uses material. Yeah, and so during the time like when uh, when he sort of first became sort of notable and popular, what do you guys think separated him at the time from other artists? Well, um, I think there's there's at least two kind of things as as a performer. There's a lot of artists where you, you hear them, whether at the time their record is out or like two years later or five years later or even 20 years later at their reunion concerts. And it still sounds just like the record when you hear it live. And mm -hmm. some people like that. It's not an easy thing to do. Dylan, even the day after, it's completely different. Like, you know, the voice might be recognizably Dylan, but it's also not the same voice it, it it changes it's nasal in in one year and it's really throaty in the next and everything is kind of changing um he he does a tour and he'll open with a song that never made it onto any album and never reappears um again that's tell me mama in 66 for example um which we don't even i think have a studio recording of i don't know where that came out so there's something that's just always kind of um moving always raw always new it it doesn't feel like an artificial product this is someone who every time he does a new take of a song the lyrics have have changed so so i think that really he stands out in this way and then in you know more traditionally and here that you know it, it's a matter of partly a matter of taste i think but but people do think um okay, well, maybe in terms of guitar playing or piano playing, you know, that there are so many people who, who could match him or, or, or do better. And the voice, of course, is, is um, an acquired taste. But in terms of the lyrics and combining the lyrics with, with, with the tune, um, I think, you know, maybe, you know, Leonard Cohen is, is very close. Of course, Leonard mm -hmm. Cohen has, has a, his range of work is, is, is a lot um, smaller than um, than Dylan's, um, but there aren't many, and it is a matter of taste. There are, there are people who say Joni Mitchell, um, for example, um, Patti Smith. I'm not saying he's unique, but but it's a small range of people we're talking about here. Yeah, I, I think it is that um, um, creativity that Dylan's got. I mean, which uh, I think uh, Constantine was kind of rehearsing a bit there. You know, the guy is massively creative, and I think if someone's renewing themselves all the time, if they continue to be creative, then they're going to kind of keep going, I think. And that's going to kind of um, attract, you know, whereas a lot, I think a lot of people, and people talk about one or two albums, you know, that people make and then they, and then their, their creativity goes, you know, so I think he's got massive energy and creativity. He's also, I think the lyrics are, are really I mean, really terrific. You know, they're they're, they're deceptively. I mean, 
they're deceptively good. I know some kind of someone, one of the early folk crowd asked him or, um, you know, hey, I mean, I, my, what what advice would you give me on lyrics, you know, to, to improve and so on? And, and he said, well, keep it simple, you know. I mean, so he does keep it pretty simple, but it's actually interesting, engaging and thoughtful. Um, he's asking questions more than delivering answers, as I said before. And, and I think that contributes to the power and the force of him, you know, much more than other other say early there's kind a kind of, of singers. there's a kind of paradox with with Dylan which is that his his very early fame comes because he does kind of attach himself to a bandwagon of you know Pete Seeger and those kind of songs and and a kind of movement in New York and he he put he's make sure he's he's at the right place at the right time Joan mm -hmm. Byers and um Carolyn Hester and and so but and his initial fame is partly due to kind of um, being quite timely in this way and probably very sort of in a quite a calculated manner. But ever since he's just going against the grain, it's always mm. the opposite. It's always going against the grain. And it's very different from say David Bowie's career where, where he's kind of following trends um, in the sixties and the seventies, you know, very creative, very original, amazing songwriter. Um, but he tends to follow the trends. Oh, it's techno, you know, and so and 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 Dylan is really not doing that. Sometimes his producers in the eighties might might have sort of imposed a, a kind of production on on an album, um, but and 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 hence his liberation now from that. But, I, but other than that, it's he's very different. I'd say he's he's also a pretty powerful. I mean. And, and you were referring to the fact that his musicianship and voice maybe are kind of acquired taste, but um, but there's a power to to his uh, voice and singing. I mean, I think John Baldy on the lyrics to, I'm sorry, on the um, liner notes to the first three, the, the triple kind of um, original bootleg album said that um, Moonshiner is worth massively worth listening to because it's sung so brilliantly and anyone who says that Dylan hasn't got a voice uh, mm, will have to listen artist. to that yeah we'll have to listen to that um to that song you know um and it is an amazing version moonshine anyone you know who wants to hear Dylan go and listen to that but and, you know, he still sings brilliantly, I think. You listen to the 85 song Dark Eyes. It's very, very well sung, I think. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, uh, and on his latest album, his voice is is really quite powerful, quite powerful still, you know. I can't think of many people who could do the, the murder most foul and, and, and do it as well. I can't think of anyone, you know, it's such a... It's a, his voice is such a powerful instrument, I think. And as uh, and as Constantine was saying, it's also subtly changing all the time. You know, people think of it as a caricatured, one-dimensional thing, but I, I you never and, hear him sing the same. The repertoire, th there's no single song that you can go to a Dylan concert and know that he will play. When so many of his peers will, you know, they might have a new album to play songs from, but they'll largely be doing a kind of greatest hit set, and you'll know exactly what what the hits will be and that just is never going to happen with with Dylan he had a face he had in the 70s he had a kind but even then he would be changing the tunes and the lyrics and and and, and so on right yeah I'm actually curious to know what or or who were his influences that's uh, something I've actually never known about him well um, you want to go first, Gary, or should I? Well, I'll 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 I'll, think, I'll, I'll go first. It's, it's a difficult one because there are so many influences. You know, I mean, he kind of um, he was massively um, uh, interested in listening to music from a very young age. And there's some kind of audio stuff of him talking to a school friend, and he's talking intelligently and thoughtfully about country music. You know, so he listened to Hank Williams a lot. Um, you know, uh, so Hank Williams mattered uh, an awful amount. He was interested in Little Richard. He, you know, he, he when Little Richard died recently, he he kind of was genuinely upset because Little Richard was was massive. You know, he moved. That was rock and roll was dangerous. You know, so rock and roll, um, you know, country music, and then he came across Woody Guthrie, and he thought this guy's authentic. This guy's got power. You know, and he he kind of heard and he listened to everything of Woody Guthrie. And 
became a Woody Guthrie jukebox and and he read Woody Guthrie. So the folk and the blues, he, he was always he was listening to blues from an early age, you know, and I think he his his kind of assimilation of blues is 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 really quite impressive. So musically and gospel he listened to. So, um, you know, he was massively influenced by the major currents of kind of um, popular music and traditional music he, he, he listened to, you know, from a young age. So he's been kind of working through that for, for a long time. So I think Hank Williams and kind of uh, Woody Guthrie are, are there, the, the great blues, you know, Delta blues people mattered a lot to him and so, hence Blind Willie McTell is a kind of, um, is a homily to 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 his to an influence, you know, and that's uh, and rock and roll, you know. So it's pretty diverse, pretty kind of, um, yeah. And 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 you know, he he he's he's delivered tribute albums actually to Jimmy Rogers and Hank Williams, and and that reflects that reflects him. And now now he's sung about Jimmy Reed and Blind Willie McTell. So you get a sense um, of the people. There's more Sunny Boy Williams. Um, yeah. Is another. Um, Count Basie, kind of more jazz blues. He he takes stuff from gospel, of course, quite quite a lot. Yeah. Mavis Staples, for for example. Um, Being poetry, he was also um, influenced by. Yeah, Gin you know, Ginsburg and Kerouac, and and was an influence on on Ginsburg. So it was a two way um, kind of thing. But yeah, this is someone who is already playing music in the late fifties. Elvis is a kind of hero. Um, um, Buddy Holly. Um, he, he claims to have seen live. Um, and so he actually starts with the rock and roll and then mo moves on to kind of um, blues, country and, and, and folk. But he listens, you know, he listens to new artists now. He's, you know, quoting, he'll, he'll um, quote like Lady Gaga or, or, or whatever, um, Alicia Keys, but, but he'll mention in, in, in lyrics um but and when he Brett. does the dj so when he does like over a hundred episodes kind of 80 percent of that is from before the 60s and and you know they, they asked him about you know why is there so little new music there is new music there but not that much and they ask him and he kind of replies well, there's just so much more of the past than the present, and that's kind of you know. And uh, Susie Rotolo, her his early girlfriend, whose uh, whose picture, whose photograph is on the front of Free Weeding, you know, Dylan is with her. Her autobiography is worth reading, actually, um, in that she she describes how how kind of um, quickly Dylan picks things up you know, how he did in the, those early 60s when he was with her. She, she was um, a set designer at a Brecht kind of um, theatre um, production and, and Dylan went along and he then kind of absorbed some Brecht music and, and very quickly he, he's kind of assimilated it and got to know it, you know. Um, Stephen Sedley writes in our um, 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 book Dylan at eighty, and Stephen Sedley is is a is a is a nice guy, who kind of is was is was a member of the appeal court judge, an appeal court judge in 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 the UK, but he was also um, a kind of um, uh, a commentator on folk music for Tribune, the left wing kind of political kind of uh, journal, and he uh, he kind of um, he he was a folk interested in folk music and went to folk music sessions and he went to the troubadour where dylan appeared in 63 and kind of um listened to dylan and i asked him um i asked Stephen said the you know what dylan was like and D he said dylan was uh was interesting and what he found notable was that people sang songs and at the end of the evening they kind of got together and uh, with songs and dylan could repeat mm. after one hearing all the um, a number of the songs that Dylan had a very good ear and could kind of assimilate them very quickly. So I think Dylan has this capacity to pick up stuff, which is and stuff from everywhere, from paintings, from film, yeah, texts, Japanese lines from Japanese novels appearing, Henry Rollins, and, and stories right. in newspapers. You know, yes. <laughs> um. So yeah. Oh. 
Yeah. And then just kind of taking it back to an earlier kind of point of our conversation, right. About him bucking trends. How does, I mean, first of all, I want to know how does like a person just, how is the, how are they able to do that? Right. Because it obviously takes a, a sort of a high level of determination to do something like that. But in terms of what Bob Dylan has actually said about that, right. Why were trends, uh, okay. I don't want to kind of put words into his mouth, but why was it so important for him to go against the trends and be authentic, obviously, as opposed to be somebody like David Bowie, or even honestly, a Lady Gaga, which I mean, even though she's unique to some extent, she's also pretty like trendy in terms of the music out now. I, mean, I think there's a kind of, sorry, Gary, there's a sort of, part of it is a character trait, like, mm -hmm. like, it's, it's quite well known that if, if he was in the studio, and someone said, you know, oh, that's a really great song. That's my favorite. He'd take it off the album. Was, wow. So, so that that <laughs> happened, you know, a fair amount. Right. Um, so, so yeah. I don't, and I, I don't have an explanation for this, but that, that there's kind of a quite strong evidence that this sort of thing um, would happen, or he'd take it off the set list, or, or, or whatever. And that there's a sort of sense of um, not doing things in order to please a particular personal group of people I suppose it Gary was talking about his in individualism um, earlier on uh, and and there's there's some of that I think we spoke earlier about the people calling him the voice of his generation and so on and he he kind of wants to kind of push away from that I think I think there was a period when he was quite frankly worried he'd get shot after John Lennon and so on and just wants to sort of also distance himself from um, from those kind of things. But sorry, Gary, you were going to... No, no, I think I'd agree with you. There are different things going on. And part of it is perversity. Like um, on Empire Burlesque, you know, there was the original version of Brownsville Girl, which is a great song, New Danville Girl. And and the people backing it thought this was tremendous, but he didn't put it on the album. <laughs> so, uh, so there we are. And Blind Willie McTell, most people would see as his most distinguished song of the 80s that didn't make it onto the album but and then i guess another piece of the explanation is he just doesn't care and it's a lot easier when you don't care and i i think he's reached the point for for quite a long time now where you know selling the most number of records isn't the most important thing to him yeah and i think um someone said to him you know why wasn't blind william mctell on the album and he said look there will be other albums um, it's not so important. But having said that, I mean, I think there's a sense in which he doesn't care or he's being perverse. But I think when I was talking earlier about his creativity, I think he knows that the, well, he has a strong sense. The one thing he wants to nurture and maintain is creativity, because people who haven't got that die, you know, die on stage or he's not busy being born, he's busy dying. And how he maintains his creativity is to kind of be very intensive about making sure it's him that he's not just subscribing to a trend that he's not following other leaders you know he's not watching his parking meters you know he's going to kind of be authentic you know in in thinking it through reflecting and creating it's a kind of it's a kind of Nietzschean thing and he has a, a lot in common with Nietzsche insofar as Nietzsche is also someone who we think of as a highly original thinker but who kind of takes all his ideas from other places and then just makes something fresh with it but sometimes word for word you, you you'll find these sentences um, elsewhere but you know you know we were talking earlier about when he went electric and people famously talk about the person shouting Judas and all the booing but I, I think focusing on the booing Imagine night after night playing to audiences who are really booing you, right? And this does something to you, right? You, you either are the kind of person who says, oh, they don't like this. I'd better give them something they like tomorrow or next year or whatever. Or he got a kind of energy for, from this and, and kind of went, went the other way. And, and, you know, it's like, well, you must be awfully rich to, to, to you know, come here just to boo. To buy these tickets night after night just to boot but he got a kind of energy for it and he, it made it the music better more aggressive more and it did something to him and i i certainly think there's a turning point there where um you know once he's changed direction and he gets that response there's no looking back and and it's just i'm not doing anything i'm not but doing i think uh, yeah i agree but i think a response from the fans you know the booing 
is is very tough and he he reacted in, in a very positive way but when he kind of um um you know after 79 he for a period he was only singing um religious songs his religious songs in in concerts and some fan put up you know Jesus loves your early songs too, you know, um, and that kind of irony, I think, was maybe a better way of handling Dylan's kind of um, sheer determination to separate himself from the audience. And people were, I mean, and he tends to be right in the long run. People were walking out of of those concerts, and now they're hailed as some of his best, as were yeah. the ones that people were booing at. So sometimes it's also, you know, we talk about perversity and things, but it's also he thinks this is good. He's like. This is good. And yeah, I'm and he do this, has and this confidence. is what I want to do. And this is what my heart's in. My heart isn't in playing my greatest hits right now. If it ever if I miss them, yeah. I'll play them. And he's yeah. confident confidence. He's very confident that this is and, and, what he's and doing. Constantine is right. He's been proved right a number of times, massively, like the electric phase. Very difficult to find someone now who says that he should have stuck to the acoustic. And, and not gone electric. Um, I think it would be a good argument to make, but I think um, no one does that. And as, as Constantine says, you know, the gospel stuff is now regarded as massively good. And gospel and the, has the become- The 80s stuff is having a, 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 a real- Massive revival. Resurrection, revival. Wow. So Constantine, because you said it was a, a personality trait, would you say that he was a contrarian? I think there's a- certainly a contrarian in him. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't want to say that kind of characterizes his entire per personality, um, but that that's definitely there. Yeah. Yeah. Gary, Gary you're not a, yeah, you're agreeing. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. But, but, probably, but, but also with the caveat that um, Constantine said, you know, there's more there than that, you know, okay. I mean, you know, I can be contrarian in some moods, but I'm not Dylan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, and then so one of our final questions before we begin to wrap up, obviously, uh, how did you guys start on this project and obviously develop it and how did it become Dylan at 80? So as, well, as it, you were saying when you introduced us, uh, Gary had worked on a, on a book before um, um, on the political art of Bob Dylan. Gary and I used to be colleagues at, at Oxford Brooks and, and so we, we go way back as friends and Dylan fans and Hegel fans and um, all, all sorts of things and I, I um, sort of embarrassingly late. So, so Dylan turned 80 <laughs> last May, um, so May 2021. And it would have been October 2020, so eight months before or whatever, mm -hmm. where I kind of thought, oh, we should do something. I mean, I think we were always going to do something about it. And we, ju we just assumed it would be like a day of events or something. And so there was plenty of time to sort it out a few months in advance. And I suddenly thought, no, we should do a book. And, and you know, Dylan had had a, a record out that year. And so it got a lot of people through COVID. And there was a real Dylan community on, on, on Twitter talking about um, what that record did to them. And Dylan seemed to be doing stuff as he was approaching his, his 80th um, year. And little did, did we know how much he was gonna do after he turned, he turned 80. And so I, I, I told Gary, you know, um, what about this? And there's all these people we can invite and we can have a mix of like philosophers and politics people, but there's all these people on social media who have Dylan podcasts. So we invited some, some of those people and and just kind of, it was a real mix. It's like 30, over 30 short um, essays. We've got musicians in there. Um, we, we've got people from literature, people from religion, kind of, it's a real, um, I mean, we think it really worked out in, in the end. And um, we said, right, how on earth are we gonna get this done on time? So we, we made them short essays. And, and not only did people say yes, but we, we it kind of spread and people were inviting themselves to write essays. I couldn't say no to everybody. It got a little embarrassing at some point. And um, the book came out um, a little after his 80th birthday, but in his 80th year. And um, he was doing, it allowed us to, we, we managed to sneak in in our introduction as we were doing the proofs, stuff he'd been doing. He released the special during his 80th year of completely new versions of his early songs. Um, he then went on tour um, and, and so on. So, so it really came out 
of that. And one thing we wanted to do, I mean, here we are sort of um, four men, Gary doesn't have a beard, but three bearded white blokes and another sort of, uh, and, and we really wanted to kind of get, get a real mix of um, kind of nationalities, genders, age groups, so that it wasn't just sort of, um, you know, 50 year old white men write, writing about Dylan. So that was a big part of our um, kind of thing was to bring together old and new voices. Um, Michael Gray, who's been a Dylan scholar for, for decades is, and, and is incredible. And then much younger kind of um, 20 year olds writing from very different um, perspective and, and different backgrounds. Um, I'll let Gary speak now. Yeah, you've 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 said a lot, and that's great um, because um, and also I, I should kind of um, just emphasise that the inspiration for the book came from Constantine. First of all, he he got in contact with me and said, "Hey, let's do a book." Um, Dylan was eighty, and I said something like, "But we've got no time <laughs> because there there isn't much time at all, and there wasn't, you know, because we had to get a publisher, we had to get lots of people." Um, we had to edit it. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was a massive undertaking. I don't think any book has been, has been moved so quickly. And people, I was going to say, you're talking to two people who work, you know, Hercules has got nothing on us. You know, um, we, we, we can out kind of muscle Hercules in, in getting stuff done. No, and it was fun. Um, and there were 35 or 36, it depends how you count them, contributions, you know, essays. And we, we kind of edited them and we've got all kinds of people. We really wanted all kinds of people. So there were really famous philosophers. There's very important Dylanologists like, like Michael Gray and so on. But then there are kind of youngish people who haven't written much on Dylan, you know, who are in running cafes, you know, and we thought this is the kind of book we want and it's the kind of book we got. And we're, I, bet, I think we're both really pleased with it, aren't we? That, you know, so and I ran in, like, yeah, in the like, neighbourhood, I met, uh, Stephen Sedley, who's a kind of appeal court judge who knew Dylan when he was in England in, in the early 60s. And I thought this is an opportunity to get him to write something, you know, so. I was going to say, we've got like Mick Gold, who's a documentary maker, who's done films on like Watergate and, 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 mm -hmm. and, and Cuba and so on, and musicians like Robin Hitchcock and Amy Rigby, Emma Swift, Bob Junger. Um, and, and we've got I, I a really into... variety of people. I bumped into uh, a number of years ago, I went to a Dylan conference in Portugal and I met a couple of people, uh, but a person who stood out for me was Natalie Ferris, who wrote, who, who gave a paper on Dylan and sculpture. So I, I asked her to write something for the book um, and, and she did. She's now at Durham University. And, and Ray, Ray Falk, who organized the two big Isle of Wight um, festivals that Dylan and Cohen fa famously appeared in, in 69 mm. and 70. And so, and, and through this, we've been sort of, since then we've done some virtual shows and, and things and we've, we've met um, some of the musicians he played with, like Scarlett Rivera, Carolyn Hester, um, and we've just sort of, it's been quite interesting entering the kind of this, this world since then. Yeah, uh, and, and really good. You know, I mean, I agree with Dylan, actually. Creativity and creating this book has been a lot of fun, um, you know. And, and they were really amazingly punctual. 35 feet, they delivered on time. Yeah. I mean, it was really quite impressive and good stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I love the fact that this one person's music literally spurred this entire community. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of yeah. united them dur during COVID. And yeah, it was, and, it was and, really good. Yeah. Feeling. And we get kind of, um, you know, I get a lot of positive feedback on the book. You know, it's actually made people smile. And that's worth a lot. I love that. And then so, Constantine, can you tell us where we can find a book? And obviously, the discount yeah, I was going to say, even, <laughs> even Dylan is smiling on the cover. <laughs> Not everyone likes the smiling Dylan. People are used to a very different kind of Dylan. So it's edited by Gary and me. It's um, published by, by Imprint. You can get it. You can get it on pretty much all the online um, um, bookshops, in, in, including Amazon in the States. Um, but if you go to um, Imprint Academic's own website, which is just imprintacademic.com, um, with the, the discount code is cap, it's CAT21, so C-A-T in capital letters, 21. 
um, and that that will give you um, a, um, a pretty good discount. And even the the worldwide postage is is pretty affordable, so it comes out better than Amazon, say of, overall. Um, so that's a nice place to get it from as well. But you can find it from um, you know um, online bookshops and and so on and so forth. Yeah, uh, and it's like it's I don't know in dollars it's like a paperback, so it's about it's about fifteen pounds here, so twenty something dollars, something like that. Yeah, and and we've had a lot of fun doing it. We put on an event at the Troubadour in uh, the folk club, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, and Emma Swift and Barb Younger sang, and that was that was really good. Um, we're putting on one uh, one another gig at Oxford Brookes University on April the eighth, um, and that will be fun. And Barb Younger's appearing at that one. I love it. And right. Nana Muscari liked it. She wrote us a little blurb. <laughs> I don't know if that's visible. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And, and Scarlett Rivera and Carolyn Hester loved it. So that's good. All right. Alan, any final questions for them before we go? Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow both of you, uh, where, where could we find you? Where could we find your work? Let's start with Constantine. Um, you can find Gary hiding in his basement. No, um, <laughs> you can find me. Um, C Sandis on on Twitter is probably the easiest place to to find me, um, unless you're roaming the streets of uh, Chelsea in London, in which case I might bump into you. <laughs> awesome. I think Gary, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter as well. Yeah, yeah Gary Browning on Twitter. Um, on Facebook, you can find me. Aren't you, aren't you Gary Browning 74 or something? What yeah, are I've forgotten what it is, but it's Gary <laughs> Browning something. Yeah. We'll, um, post we'll post in this. Yeah. There's only yeah. one of me. There's loads yeah, of him. Yeah. yeah, Gary Browning, I think 74, but it's on Twitter. You'll see who it is. I'm on kind of Facebook. I'm at Oxford Brooks, um, and like Constantine, I've written a fair number of books. So you people might know. I mean, not. I mean, I, I've written on Hegel. I've I've written on Iris Murdoch, whom I like a lot. Um, and uh, uh, Dylan at eighty is on Twitter. Our publisher um, um, has that account. I don't. I don't really know what she does with it, but but tweets about Dylan, I guess, or about Dylan. Yeah, yeah, 80, and so then she's got about, too. and the book's got about two hundred followers, so that's fine. Um, oh. Yeah. And thanks right. a lot. Thanks Absolutely. a lot. Thank you guys, so much. Thank, you, thank you guys so much. Yeah, I have so much insight into Bob. Like, wow. I mean, even just the fact that he's a contrarian, now like I love this guy a lot. <laughs> so again, thank you. Hear. Thank you guys so much. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Terrific. Thank you. Guys. You're welcome. Thank you. That was awesome. First of all, I'm getting the book right away. <laughs> Second of all, guys, thank you so much for watching. You can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and at C's underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. Hit the bell. And thank you so much for watching. See you next time.